morning, and I greet you in Jesus' name, and it's wonderful to see all of you here. We are going to continue our series on turning the world upside down, Jesus the Messiah through the life and teaching of the Apostle Paul. When we have a special service like a child dedication, um, and, and I decide, make the decision to continue to do the series that we're in, I always wonder how the Lord's going to put this together. But it's His Word, it's His Spirit, and He does, and I believe He did again this morning. This morning's message is drawn from a part of Paul's experience with a church that he had invested so much energy in, and so much time, and so much care, and so much love, but a church that probably in all of the New Testament caused him greatest pain and greatest anxiety, and probably rejected him more explicitly than any other church. Paul is writing this morning to the Corinthian church. And interestingly, historically, we know more about the Corinthian church than we do about, we know more about Corinth than we do about most other cities of the time because of Paul's writings. Um, and so what we receive from Paul um, gives historical validation to much of what we don't actually know among many other cities. As Paul writes to this young church, young both in their spiritual maturity, but also young in terms of how long they have been followers of the Messiah, N.T. Wright, who has written the book on the Apostle Paul that it's undergirding much of what I'm sharing over this fall, Anglican uh, pastor and writer, theologian, notes that in particular, Paul addresses three things with the church in Corinth. Sex, money, and not power, which is what we usually say, um, but goes along with that, but rather the Messiah. Sex, money, and the power of the Messiah. Why is Paul addressing these three with the Corinthian church? Because he wants this church in the midst of a pagan culture that is saturated with all things sexual and the worship of idols and false deities that are integrated with that um, emphasis on sex to understand what it means to be a colony of the Messiah, to understand what it means to live in the Messiah's kingdom in the midst of a pagan culture. I mean, think about it with me. Paul is inviting people to follow the Messiah who have never heard the Messiah, who don't know what it means to, to live like the Messiah, who don't have the New Testament, who, are, who only have the Torah and, um, other, uh, and other writings from Jewish tradition. And so Paul is trying to shore up. He's, trying to, he's actually trying to do, I think, a lot of what Bethany said in terms of wrapping that which is spiritual around um, this, this, these little congregations in Corinth. Remember what it means to be apostolic? The apostle was a ship in Greek and Roman society that set sail during Roman and Greek times to establish Roman and Greek colonies in places where there were none. That's how the Roman Empire expanded. It expanded because of these apostles, these ships and these ship captains who went throughout the world. The early church adapts that word apostleship and apostle to, to describe what, what, what the early church did, what Paul did. Paul was an apostle because he went throughout the then known world planting churches where there were no kingdom, where there was no kingdom witness. And so a church that is apostolic, which frankly every church should be, is a church that understands its mission to the world is front and foremost, not taking care of itself but it's mission to the world to represent Christ so that apostolic churches are always multiplying themselves. And they're multiplying themselves by 
tapping and calling out the gifts of those who are among us. It's why we say every member a minister. That's an apostolic church where every member is invited to be a minister on this ship. Remember the Roman ship had oars sticking out the sides. And I said, there's an oar for every one of you. So to be apostolic means we are always moving to multiply what God is doing, to multiply the kingdom, and all of us are part of that experience and part of that. All of us have a role in that. Paul was an apostle to the Corinthian church, teaching them what it meant to live faithfully as Messiah followers in the midst of a pagan culture. Because again, that's what the church is, folks. We are not a static place. Several weeks ago, we commissioned this little sailboat in the multi-purpose space called the, the Apostle. We commissioned it because we are commissioning ourselves to be on the move, not to be static, not just to show up here and sit in pews, but to say that we are moving, that we are moving where God is calling us to move, that the church is a kingdom colony on the frontier, that it's always looking for those places in the neighborhood and in the community, in our workplace, where Jesus the Messiah is not known, and there's no witness and testimony for Jesus. It's a mission post in the badlands. It's a lighthouse in a dangerous harbor. That's what the church is when it's at its best. When it's at, it's apostolic. Our congregation is a colony of the Messiah, Messiah kingdom established here in this place nearly 115 years ago. We are established to be in the midst of hurting people, confused people, wounded people, people like ourselves. We exist as a colony of the kingdom, not for ourselves, but for the world that God so loves that is around us and that God so loves still. We have launched our ship into the waters as a congregation to plant other colonies, to multiply kingdom life wherever God calls us to go and to do it. And I think that's awfully exciting. Amen? I mean, there's nothing boring about that. It's not just coming to church and singing a few hymns. It's like looking always for God. Where are you multiplying us? Where are you calling us? In our neighborhoods, in our homes, in our communities, and in our extended families, or maybe across the sea, Elizabethtown and beyond. That's what we are, and that's what it means to be apostolic. I want to read this morning, the, 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 the message comes actually from 1 Corinthians 3 to 9, and don't worry, I'm not going to read all of 3 to 9, but I am going to read parts of those uh, chapters, and so I'm going to start out with 1 Corinthians 3, and so folks in the front, if you could help me out with 1 Corinthians chapter 3. What page number, for those of you who are new, we have Bibles under the seat in front of you, or we should. And so 1 Corinthians 3, I am going to read all of this in its entirety, because maybe it's, it sums up perhaps best uh, much of what these chapters are about, although I'll get to a couple of others in a moment. 925 in the Bible, in front of you, if you need a Bible. 1 Corinthians 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. Mary infants in Christ, I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere humans, men and women? What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither they who plant nor they who water is anything but only God who makes things grow. 
The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how they build, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hair, stubble, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. If what they built has survived, they will receive their reward. If it is burned up, they will suffer loss, though they themselves will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Don't you know, and I can just hear Paul, remember going back Sundays ago, we are now the temple of Christ. Heaven meets earth within you. Heaven meets earth within me. Heaven meets earth within us. And you can, and you can hear Paul um, just, I'm sure, just declaring this boldly. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. For God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. And I'm sure for the Jews of the time, they're, they're thinking about the temple. And, and how um, disastrous and tragic it would be to desecrate God's temple. And Paul's saying, but now you're the temple. And, and, and the same consequences come to you if you destroy the temple in which heaven meets earth. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks they are wise by the standards of this age, they should become a fool so that they may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written... They catch the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Um, I took a Greek class and one of the things we know about Paul is his sentences never end. And I love the way he just, um, in there in 20 to 21 and 20, he just keeps going. You know, life and death and on and on and on. Nothing. Uh, all of those are yours, um, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians 5, 9 to 13, and I'm going to read uh, that passage, um, page 926, thank you. 5, 9 to 13, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world, and hear that. He's not saying don't associate with, don't not associate with people of this world um, who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In this case, you would have to leave the world. So he's not saying leave the world. And I don't want you to hear my message this morning. And what I have to share is saying we have to leave the world to do this. Paul's saying, no, 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 you stay in the world to do this. You don't leave the culture to do this. You're called as light to the culture. So you got to be in the culture but not of the culture. But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a one, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. And now I'm going to read verse, uh, verses 9 to 19. From chapter 6. 
verses 9 to 19 um, from chapter 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters. Notice how he holds those together, because idolatry and sexual immorality always went hand in hand in pagan culture. Neither idolaters nor uh, adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gushes out, and that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Everything is permissible to, to me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant. And again, when he's talking about the body, he's thinking about it as the temple of God. You've got to put that in this context. Paul is adamantly against sexual immorality because he sees us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute, like happened in the temples uh, in Greek and Roman society? Never do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body. For it is said the two will become one flesh, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins one commits are outside their body, but they who commit sins sexually commit sexually sins who sins sexually, sins against their own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Everything I say this morning about sexual behavior and, 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 um, and things related have to be understood within the context of what Paul understood our bodies to be. These were not just simple rules that Paul said, don't do this stuff. Paul said, this is the expectation. If, you are, if heaven meets earth within you, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What do we hear in these passages? First of all, Paul chides the Corinthian church on their immaturity. They are a people who have an insufficient life with God. They are still drinking from theological infant bottles rather than from the depth and breadth of the riches of the Messiah. Being an infant Messiah follower means that we have not yet abandoned the cultural values and beliefs and norms of the society around us. We're still embracing them. Paul doesn't reject that world, as we looked at, but, he is, but we have, as Messiah followers have been called out of that world. When we step from the world of darkness into the light of the Messiah kingdom, the only way to stay in that kingdom is to grow and mature in one's relationship with the Messiah. And what is the evidence of worldliness? For Paul, in this passage, it is, it is the fact that the Corinthians took their eyes off of the Messiah and put their eyes on other leaders, on a Paul, on Apollos, on Peter. They were dividing up Christ when Christ was not divided. Come on, Paul says, don't you know that you've been converted to the Messiah and not to some other earthly leader? It is the Messiah who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light and not Paul or Apollos or Peter. When we take our eyes off the Messiah, we will always put them on somebody or something else. Always. Our focus will always be somewhere if it's not on the Messiah. 
Remember, folks, for Paul and for us, everything rotates around our love for and commitment to the Messiah. The Messiah who was the fulfillment, Paul says, of the Shema prayer in Deuteronomy 6, who is the climax of this eschatological story from Abraham to Moses to David to exile and now that culminates in the Messiah. Everything that Paul teaches and preaches from his perspective is related to the understanding of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah's kingdom is like. Paul is not so concerned. You know, we hear Paul talking about unity. Paul is not so concerned that there are differences of opinion about any number of things in the church. Unity for Paul did not mean that people agreed. He was open to differences about circumcision. He was open open to differences about food offered to idols. He was open to differences about a number of things, but he has no tolerance for anything that demotes the Messiah from the Messiah's rightful place. To be unified for Paul meant we are all focused on the Messiah. We're going to disagree about some other stuff, but it is the Messiah who has called us, and I am convinced that Paul believed that if we keep our eyes eyes focused on the Messiah and are developing our life with God, we'll figure everything else out together. But when we take our eyes off the Messiah, we will put it on something else. We'll put it on an issue, we'll put it on a person, and then we have lost our track. It is all about the Messiah for Paul and the freedom from death and Satan and hell and destruction that the Messiah's resurrection has brought and that the new kingdom has ushered in. Paul said to the Corinthian church, I have come to you to know, to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and him crucified, period. That's why he came. That's the message Paul brought, and I think nothing broke his heart more than when he saw the, the Messiah divided up, when he saw unity broken up by their commitment to others, to issues, um, rather than focused on the Messiah. What Paul is struggling with throughout these two letters in the Corinthians, to the Corinthians is helping them to negotiate their way out of pagan culture out of pagan culture, and into the new kingdom of the Messiah. That's what he's doing. He's he's telling them how to do this. Paul is trying to help the Corinthian church to understand what it means to leave the gods and idols that they themselves would have worshipped, that their grandchildren, grandparents worshipped, their great-grandparents, to leave those things behind and embrace the new beliefs, the values, the language, the behavior that is normative for kingdom life, for the Messiah's kingdom. I currently have students in my social theory course at 8 o'clock reading a book called The Parent App, written by a sociologist and a mother who was faced with the growing up of her middle school daughter and the challenges she faced when she got her daughter a phone. I opened class two weeks ago by asking my students how they use social media and how they communicate with one another. After that, I lost complete control of the class. My students reveled, reveled, giggled, delighted themselves in the opportunity to tell Dr. Kanegi what their world was like and the vocabulary that their generation has created and the norms and etiquette of texting. They kept laughing at the puzzled and confused look on my face as they told me about Finsta and Slaps and Shook and the tea and I'm out of here and on and on and on. They filled literally two boards with language and etiquette of what it means to text. I, I had no idea. 
I learned, for example, that it is insulting to return a text to a generation Zer simply with the letter K. You know, you get a text and someone says, will you do this, or I'm going to do this, and I just say K. They said, Dr. Kennedy, that is insulting because you're not, you're not engaging us. You're blowing us off. You don't have time for us. So I apologized, and they said, that's okay. You're an old guy, and we've learned how to negotiate old people. You know, we have parents like you, and so we just learned that, well, that's just the way they do things. So I guess I was to find comfort in that. I learned other things, that parents and older people like me love to use emojis much more than Generation Z. They get a big chuckle out of the little pictures we use. They don't quite understand why we like pictures so much, but they, they allow us to get away with it, and they think it's kind of cute, but they said, we ourselves, we don't use emojis very much. I also learned that profanity that is used so much in texting is also, and they told me this, making profanity much more normative in everyday conversation. So using a variety of different words that you can come to mind when I talk about profanity, um, they acknowledged it's just making it much more acceptable in their everyday language, and they said, when we come to class, we got to work hard to filter that out. When we're talking to our parents, we have to work hard to filter that out because we're just, we're just accustomed to using those words in our texting. I learned that my students regularly use the phrase existential dread. I had no idea. Existential dread to describe how they feel about the future. And they were serious. They said, we don't expect much out of the future. We don't expect much to happen. We expect jobs to be hard to find. We expect climate change to continue, and on and on. I learned that a meme is anything that goes viral. It could be anything that goes viral. And uh, so when they told me that the word shook in a text means that you are shocked or surprised, I said, wow, that word takes on whole new meaning for someone with Parkinson's disease. Um, and they loved it. And by the end of the class, they had created a meme with my face in the middle and that quote around it. And apparently, it's floating somewhere in the digital stratosphere. Um, they said they will show me the last day of class. I learned that gamers have one kind of texting language and athletes another. The guys have a much shorter vocabulary for texting than girls. And then they said, next class period, we're giving you a quiz, Dr. Kanegi. Well, they didn't give me a quiz. They gave me like a midterm. Um, so I offered to take them out for coffee to take the midterm, and, and, they, and, they, and they were delighted by that. Um, but I didn't do so well. They gave me a 95 out of 100, but they curved it like crazy. I mean, I just... <laughs> I really did not. I mean, one of the essays was 33 points, and I, I said three sentences, I think, and they gave me full credit. So um, they were very uh, gracious. They also chuckled because I created my own acronym to go with the cartoon they had, and by the end of the quiz, I couldn't remember what the acronym stood for. <laughs> it wasn't impressive. Well, it was quite a learning experience for me and for my students because they said, you know, we never, we never take time to reflect on what this means. Because I, while I was taking the quiz, I had them take a quiz on what does this language and this culture change that some would say is as significant in communication as the, the printing press, that the Internet's coming is as significant as the printing press in changing communication. I mean, folks, whether you're aware of it or not, the way we communicate is changing right now among this generation. They are getting hardwired to different ways of communicating. I, I was amazed that there's this subculture taking place around me that I had no clue about. Like, how, how is this so invisible? Why don't I know about this? It was a little disconcerting. But they took a quiz, too, on what this meant for them. And they said that it was valuable because they never sit, sit back and talk about it. 
I couldn't help but realize that there is this subculture, as I've said, that I had no idea existed and I didn't understand. Parents who dedicated your children this morning, but others who are parents and grandparents, our children are growing up in a culture that is very different from the one we grew up in and that is different from the one that you probably are currently part of. The changes in social media and technology are accelerating this divide between you and your children. A critical question for you and for all of us as our children grow up is, how is the good news of the Messiah's kingdom going to be shared with this generation? How will we nurture the values and beliefs and practices of kingdom culture in our children? It's the same question Paul had about how do we establish church and a a Messiah community in a pagan culture. It's the very same question. So if we don't pay attention to what Paul did, we're missing it. Because he gives us instructions about how to do this. Will our children experience the kingdom culture in your home and between you as parents? Will they learn what is normative behavior in the kingdom by watching your behavior? Is your behavior kingdom behavior? Because that's how they're going to learn what kingdom behavior is or is not. Will they come to understand that the standards you put in place, the discipline you require, the stories you read, the way you model your life with God by spending time with God, will they understand that this is part of kingdom culture, bringing them to this faith community, engaging in faith in this faith community yourselves, husband and wife loving one another. These are all part of the kingdom culture. Will they come to understand that this kingdom offers freedom, life, meaning, peace, victory, joy, hope, power, and certainly, in the midst of existential dread, a future glory that we have not yet begun to imagine? Folks, this gospel has an answer for this generation. This gospel has an answer for them and for us. Parents, you are creating a kingdom culture in your home. When Heidi and I do premarital counseling, we say to those couples, you, are, you get a chance to start all over again. You get a chance to create a new culture in your home. And Bethany, I love the way you said that if we've messed up in the past, we still get to do it again. Not just with new children, but by wrapping the spiritual around everything, by wrapping the Messiah's message around everything. It was a wonderful word. It is never too late for us to prioritize the Messiah kingdom. Even if our kids are out of their home, there's a spiritual dynamic that seeing us reestablish the Messiah culture has an impact upon them. Parents, you are authorized to do this. You, you are missionaries, as it were. You are apostles, as it were, to your children. You are multiplying the kingdom, life, and culture in your home so that they can grow up and multiply it in their home. This is missionary work. This is ministry work. Do not underestimate the mission that is taking place in your home. Do not underestimate it. It is your calling to replicate the kingdom and the kingdom culture in your family. Paul says, remember, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul understood the Messiah to be the one in whom heaven meets earth within us. Which brings me to the second major concern of which Paul speaks so often to the Corinthian church, that of sexual purity. Paul spends a lot of time on sex and sexual behaviors in these two letters. 
And it was not because Paul was so preoccupied with sex, as it was that Corinthian culture, like our own, was so preoccupied with sex. In Corinth, as in many pagan cultures, sexual practices were deeply integrated with the worship of idols and deities and gods and goddesses. Sex and pagan religious practice were integrated, went hand in hand, often at the temples where people worshipped. Within these pagan religions, the demonic powers had integrated and perverted the gift of sex and sexuality that Paul has no time for confusion about. He has no time for confusion about the appropriate and ordained place for sex within the kingdom of the Messiah. While Paul tolerated differences on food offered to idols, on circumcision and other things, he consistently has no tolerance for sexual sin. None. Because for Christians, as well as God's people throughout the Old Testament, sexual behavior, motivation, passion was one of the major and primary distinctions between them and the pagan culture around them. So I hear sometimes, I say, well, as Mennonites, we no longer dress differently. What distinguishes? Paul would say the way we think about sex, the way we talk about sex, the way we text about sex, the way we joke about sex, what we believe about sex. Paul says that, that is a major distinction because the Corinthian church didn't wear coverings. The Corinthian church didn't wear plain suits. But they were called to differentiate themselves from the society around them by the way they thought about their bodies as the temples of the Holy Spirit. The way they thought about their bodies as that place where heaven meets earth, and Paul says, which has no space for sexual sin and perversion. When the Corinthians crossed the threshold into the kingdom culture, they were making a commitment to honor God's order and God's design for marriage and sexual intimacy. No matter what the cultures around them said, Paul believes consistently and taught consistently that, that what separates followers of the Messiah from their pagan na- neighbors was sexual purity and faithfulness to the God-given boundaries that sexual intimacy occurs within the context of a marriage between a husband and wife. He repeats that over and over. He spends chapters 5 and 6 imploring the Corinthians to abandon sexual immorality. In chapter 5, he condemns the church for allowing a man to be sexually intimate with his apparently a stepmother. Hand this man over to Satan, says Paul. Expel the wicked man from among you. Put a boundary around this behavior because it's idolatrous. Paul feared this behavior because it was pagan temple behavior and had no place in the Messiah's kingdom. He continues his challenge to the Corinthians in naming a variety of sexual sins in chapters 5 and 6, but he lines up a whole host of other sins right with them. This is what some of you were, he says. But you are washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. So set this stuff aside. It's part of what you were, not part of what you are now in Christ. For Paul, a major indicator of whether they were followers of the Messiah or not was how effectively they guarded their spiritual purity and faithfulness. Young people, however you consider yourselves young, I'd like to talk to you for a moment. You're growing up in a world where sex is ubiquitous, meaning it's everywhere. It's like the wallpaper around you, in your room or wherever. You see it everywhere, you hear it everywhere, you now take it for granted. It's just there. I think many in your generation don't even think about it being there because you've grown up with it. That's not your fault. I'm not blaming you. But But when something is everywhere around us, 
all of the time, it soon finds its way into our own lives and souls. And that's true for adults, and it's true for young people. Because that's what culture does. When we live in a culture, a particular culture, it becomes one of us. It, it, it saturates us. That's why kingdom culture is so important. That's why bringing our kids to church is so important. That's why it's prioritizing church over anything else is so important. Because we are prioritizing the culture that we want to seep into their lives and to dictate who they are. We don't come to church to be legalistic. We come to church to be changed and transformed into the Messiah's image in a way that doesn't happen anywhere else except, I hope, in our homes. The thing that we often hear is that the church must remain culturally relevant and so give greater space to sexual intimacy outside the bounds of a marriage relationship between husband and wife. The problem is the culture that is telling us this is, a pagan, is, is pagan and is sexually perverse as Corinth. Where are we going to take our counsel from? Meaning the last place we should be looking for direction with regard to sex is the culture around us. Doing so is like sending someone on a diet to Shady Maple for counseling on dieting. Or like someone who has anxiety attacks when they watch a horror movie, sending them to Stephen King for counseling. Or any number of things. We don't do it. The culture around us is the wrong place to look for sexual direction. The place we must look for direction for our lives is not the broader culture, but back to the Messiah. And what it means to be a people of the Messiah who are washed, who are sanctified, who are cleansed by his blood. As in the Corinthian church, if we compromise in this one area, we open ourselves to the principalities and powers that I think we have no idea about what we're doing. Because the principalities and powers are, were always, in pagan culture and in current culture, associated with sexual perversion. We may not see idols or deities behind the porn industry in this country or behind those promoting sexual promiscuity, but the same principalities and powers of Satan are just as real behind them as they were of the temples in Corinth. Paul raises the level of sexual sin above other sins in chapter 6, 18 to 20. Flee, he says, from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside their body, but those who sin sexually against their own, do so against their own body. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You see how he keeps tying this in to the temple. Pagan temple, Holy Spirit temple. There's a difference. Do you not know? You were bought at a price. You are not your own. Therefore, honor God with your body. When Heidi and I do premarital counseling, we always ask the couple whether they've been sexually intimate or not. They don't need to tell us. But going forward from the day they meet with us until their wedding day, we ask them to commit to not being sexually intimate until their wedding. Why? For the same reason that Paul teaches the Corinthians that sexual sin is in a class of its own because historically it's identified with the gods and the principalities and powers of this world. But we are washed, we are sanctified, we are cleansed, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the last thing we should be doing is going back to those pagan temples we came from and engaging in sexual activity that is not that of the Messiah followers. Parents, you, your children, as you are aware, are growing up in a culture in which my students regularly tell me has no sexual boundaries or expectations for sexual behavior, despite the fact that the, that the college's student handbook has 40 pages, 40 pages, a font that's probably about eight, telling them how to live their sexual lives, because it has, they have to to cover themselves from liability. 40 pages! 
And I hear them say to me, we wish our culture did have some boundaries. Because the era of sexual freedom that we live in, particularly for my female students, has not made them feel more safe today. It's made them feel less safe. Because sexual freedom always means that those who are most vulnerable will always be more vulnerable. It is our responsibility to teach our children the sexual norms of kingdom life from very early on. To have those conversations with them, to help them understand why these norms are so important as part of the kingdom culture for their life, for the order of their lives, for their joy, for their life, for their meaning. Because sexual sin always brings chaos, confusion, and disorder and division just as it did in the Corinthian church. It is also your responsibility, parents, to help your children to understand that in a confused culture, what it means to be a man and what it means to be a woman. And that there remains a created difference embedded in them at birth. Again, looking to our culture for definitions of male and female is like looking to astrology to learn what's going to happen to me in the future. It's not the place to go. It is your responsibility to challenge your boys as they grow up to become the leaders who embrace the adventures of kingdom life. I worry that within the church we have pacified our boys and have taken from them the very qualities of excitement and risk-taking that are part of being a man of God. I have loved leading boys club this fall and watching fathers step into the teaching of their boys the truths of the kingdom and walking with their boys. Wednesday night was amazing as I watched the fathers do this. Men, we have a special responsibility to lead our families in the ways of kingdom life and to set a spiritual guard around our homes, not in a way that diminishes the spiritual role of mothers or wives or demeans our children, but who as men are leaders, protectors, and the ones who love our wives and children so much that we would lay down our lives for them. And parents, likewise, it is your responsibility to teach your daughters to understand what it means to have values because they are created value because they are created in God's image and have God's imprint upon them. That their identity and their beauty and their loveliness has nothing to do with how society judges their bodies or objectifies them as sexual beings. Our daughters quickly feel tremendous pressure from the world around them. But they are beautiful because God, their Heavenly Father, made them beautiful. The idols of this age will repeatedly tell them from very early on that their beauty depends on how they look, and it is up to us as parents to continually tell them otherwise. That's not the source of their value. The words you share with them will either reinforce these messages of the culture or reinforce the messages of their Heavenly Father. And dads, we in particular can quickly destroy the self-image of our daughters by careless and callous remarks about how they look, how they're dressed, their weight, and on and on. As parents, we have tremendous power to support the messages of either the pagan culture or the kingdom culture. And every word that comes out of our mouth has the potential to do either. And here again, I just want to note that Paul is often misunderstood. Paul was not a misogynist who hated women. Paul, like Jesus before him, valued women more than the culture around him. And he valued them as Jesus did, not for their sexuality, but for their gifts and the, God, the, the gifts that God had placed within them. Both Jesus and Paul made significant advances against the beliefs of their cultures about women and the value of women. Jesus, who always had women following close to him. Jesus receiving the perfume that was poured out upon him and his feet dried by that same woman. An intimate moment. A meeting of Jesus and the woman at the well who found new life and value in the presence of Messiah. Mary and Martha, with whom Jesus had a very special relationship. Paul himself in the epistles cites at least 13 women 
who assisted him in his ministry, despite what he taught in several places about women. Because when it came right down to it, Paul was not going to allow the gifts that the apostolic mission so needed for God's calling and mission to be off limits by one's gender. In fact, Phoebe took the letter from Paul to the church of Rome, likely, from what we can understand, read that letter to the church and perhaps even expounded upon it. In Christ, said Paul, there is no Jew or Greek, male and female, all are one in Christ Jesus. Parents, it is your responsibility to call out and cultivate the gifts of your daughters for kingdom use. Those might be nurturing gifts. They might be leadership gifts. They might be, they're going to definitely be ministry gifts. But whatever they do, be careful not to douse their energy and imagination as to what the Messiah might be calling them up to, too. They must never have to leave the church in order to use their kingdom gifts. I watched my mother do this for decades. She had to leave the church to use her gifts outside the church until finally the church recognized those gifts and she could use them for the kingdom of God within the church. It is in this community of faith and the safety of this community that both our boys and our girls get to try out the spiritual gifts that God embedded in them at birth. There is simply too much seed to be traveled and too many colonies to plant to restrict the gifts of either of them. It's interesting, there was a time when Lancaster Conference would allow women to use, go to the mission field to use any of their ministry gifts, including preaching, but when they came home, they couldn't. There's something wrong with that picture, folks. The spiritual gifts of men and women and boys and girls are equally valuable and necessary for this apostolic journey we are on, whether it's here at 300 South Spruce Street or whether, as Isaac told us, we're going to Madagascar uh, two weeks ago. Parents, you are creating and reinforcing kingdom culture in your homes. Your homes are little islands of Messiah's kingdom. Your homes are where your children are taught how to live in a pagan culture. Your homes are where your children are prepared to differentiate themselves from pagan culture and kingdom culture. Your homes are little churches. And you as parents are apostles and prophets and evangelists and teachers and shepherds. If your children do not learn the kingdom culture in your home, it is unlikely they will ever learn it anywhere else. But you are not alone. We as a church are with you to reinforce and support your efforts to teach your children how to become men and women of the Messiah's kingdom. And that's what a Sunday like this is about and why it is so special. That we are partners with you. You and your children are not alone. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word.